So after all of this, we've had a lot of announcements this morning. We're going to start a new three-part series. We've just closed our Loving Our Neighbors series. And we're going to call this one Integrity and Influence. And we're going to be looking at some of the stories about King David, especially in his early years before he became king. So I'm going to open and close the series. And I've asked Hayden Carruth to do the middle one, which will be next week, so don't miss it. That will be good. And what got me thinking about this idea of integrity and influence was a conversation that I once had with a mentor. And this is a mentor of mine who is an executive in the business world, and I was asking her for some advice on leadership. And she said, you know, Emily, one of the helpful things that I think you could remember is that leadership is really just influence, right? Leadership is just influence. And you can only lead as much as people are willing to be influenced by you. And even if people don't consider themselves leaders, really everyone leads in so much as they influence other people and their surroundings. Right? So every one of us here leads in some way. And you can lead and influence out of a place of fear, appealing to people's basis instincts, or you can lead out of love and out of a place of integrity. And when you lead out of integrity, sometimes you have to go against the popular grain, and that takes a really deep inner grounding. Right, a knowing who you are and a real knowing, an inner knowing that what you're doing is the right thing, or if you're a follower of Jesus, perhaps you might say the thing that God is asking you to do. So since we all have our own spheres of influence, whether those are large or small, what we're going to do is delve into some of the stories that have shaped both Christians and Jews, including Jesus, for millennia. So these are stories that might provide some wisdom or some insight on how we can lead with integrity. So many of you guys know that I grew up in Indiana. And if you guys know anything about Hoosiers, you know that we love basketball. And some of you guys might remember that movie from the 80s, I think, called Hoosiers. Anybody see that? That was like one of my favorites growing up. I see Ashley like shaking her head, yes. Gene Hackman was in it. So that movie was based on a true story of a small rural um, high school that against all of the odds, their team went and won like the high school basketball championship. And this was back before there were divisions, right? So this was like a division four or five basketball team that went and like won the whole thing. And they filmed the final scene of that movie at Hinkle Fieldhouse, which was where the actual game took place. And that was on my college campus where I did my undergrad work at Butler University, right? So this is kind of like in my blood. You know, Hoosier, it's like, it's the ultimate underdog movie. And we love people we view as underdogs. I think there's something about us humans that's attracted to stories about people who seem to overcome great odds. And I think they're the best stories because they remind us that while people with power so often come out on top, power and strength actually come in different forms. And power isn't always what it seems. And that's part of the reason I think that the story of David and Goliath is one of the most cherished stories in our tradition. And I think most of us probably know the story of David and Goliath. But I also think there's a real value in our communities to be able to hear that story told. And when I was thinking about it, I thought, I don't know if I've heard anybody tell me the story verbally of David and Goliath, maybe since I was in Sunday school. So that's where we're going to start. It's a story that goes like this. A long time ago, in ancient Judah, there was a king named Saul. And Saul and his army were being attacked by a people from the Mediterranean island of Crete. And these people were called Philistines. And the Philistines, they had sailed across the sea and they had landed on the shores of Judah and they were fighting their way inland. Some of you guys know I I lived in and studied in Israel for a few months and that part of the country is just particularly hilly in that area, right? It's made up of these great hills with these big valleys. 
And these valleys go from the Mediterranean Sea inland, and they lead to some of the larger cities like Jerusalem and Hebron and Bethlehem. Although I think Hebron and Bethlehem are probably more like villages in this time period. And the Philistines, they wanted to come in from the sea and they wanted to go up those valleys and capture those villages because those towns were along important trade routes and so they were of strategic value. Plus, the valleys were lush and green in the springtime. So it gets really brown there in the fall and winter and then when the rains come, it gets green and lush and you can grow food and you can grow grapes for wine. And so these Philistines had camped out on one of the hills over these valleys, and they were met by King Saul, who was the king of Judah, defending his land with his army, and they were camped on the opposite hill. And the two armies were at an impasse, because it would have been costly, probably even suicidal, for either army to make a move. It would require the soldiers going from one hill, down it, through the exposed valley, and then up the hill that the other enemy was sitting on top of that would give the enemy a tactical advantage. And so the Philistines had decided on a strategy that was very common in the ancient world. They had decided that to avoid this widespread bloodshed, even if they'd agreed to come and meet in the middle, it would have been, it would have been bad. What they decided to do was to send their best warrior into that valley to challenge the best warrior that the Israelites could muster, one-on-one, mano y mano. And so a man who was called the champion in scripture, he came forth from the Philistine army down into the valley. And the word there that is translated as the champion in Hebrew literally means the man between. And his name was Goliath. He's recorded as being about eight feet tall. Now some scholars think that maybe he had an issue with his pituitary gland that caused him to grow really tall, perhaps compromised his eyesight, But other people think that maybe the text isn't meant to be precise, but it's just exaggerating to let us know that this guy was huge, right? Regardless, Goliath was terrifying. And so Goliath came sauntering down the valley and he had this giant bronze helmet over his head and he had bronze armor on his body that probably looked like dragon scales. The armor on his body alone weighed about 125 pounds. And he had bronze on his legs, and he had a spear in his hand that was probably about that big around, and he had a javelin and a sword. And out in front of him, there was his shield bearer, a man who would go forth carrying the shield. And so Goliath gets down there, and he calls out across the valley. He says, why should you deploy for battle? Choose a man and let him come down to me. And if he prevails in battle against me and he strikes me down, we'll be your slaves." But if I prevail and I strike him down, you will be slaves to us and you will serve us. I'm the one who has insulted the Israelites, so give me a man and let's do battle together. And we're told that Saul heard this and all of Israel with him, these words of Goliath, and they were dismayed and they were very frightened. Goliath did this every single day, morning and night, for 40 days. And then the scene shifts. And we see David, this young shepherd boy from the town of Bethlehem. And David was the youngest of eight brothers, and his oldest three brothers were fighting in Saul's army. And so one day, David's father Jesse comes to him, and he asks him to take some grain and some bread to his brothers and some pieces of cheese for their commander. And so David got up early in the morning, and he left his flock of sheep with a keeper 
And he took the grain and he took the bread and he took the cheese and his dad had given him and he went on his way. And when he arrived at the camp, said he left his gear, he probably left those provisions with the keeper of the gear, and he ran out to the front lines where his brothers were to see if they were well. And as he was speaking to them, Goliath came down the hill and he repeated that challenge to the Israelites. He says, choose a man and let him come down to me. And the men of Israel, when they saw Goliath, it says they fled and were frightened. And one of the Israelite soldiers said, have you guys seen this man coming up? He comes up just to insult Israel. But whoever strikes him down, he's going to get a fortune from the king. He's going to be able to marry the king's daughter. And also, his entire family will never have to pay taxes again. Well, David overhears this. And he turns to the men who are standing nearby, and he's like, say what? So you're telling me if I kill Goliath, this giant who's insulting God, what am I going to get again? And so they repeat it. They say, you're going to get money? can marry the king's daughter, and your family would never have to pay taxes again. Well, then David, his oldest brother, Eliab, he comes over, he hears this conversation, and he gets all condescending with David, as sometimes brothers do, and he's like, why are you here? Who did you leave that bit of flock with in the wilderness? I know how you are, you're wicked, you just want to watch a battle. And that word there that's translated as that bit of flock is used elsewhere in scripture, and it is almost always filled with contempt. He's dripping with contempt for his brother. I'm a warrior. What did you do with that bit of flock that you play with? And so David's like, well, what have I done? I was only talking to some guys, right? So then David turns around, ignores his brother, and he asks some other men the same question. He says, what would someone get if they defeat Goliath? Right, so he's heard this reward three times at least. So by that time, word has gotten around that David seems potentially interested in fighting. And so King Saul sends for him. And David says to Saul, he says, look, let no man's heart fail him. Your servant will go and do battle with this Philistine. But Saul said to him, said, look, you can't do this. You're just a boy. This guy is a man of war and he has been from his youth. And David says, look, I've been a shepherd for my dad. And whenever a lion or a bear would come and carry off a sheep from the herd, I would go and I would strike him and I would take the sheep from his mouth. And if a lion was still alive and he was fighting me back, I would grab him by the beard and kill him. I can get this Philistine. And Saul replied, he said, go, may the Lord be with you. So then Saul took David and he gave him his own battle garb. And David put on the bronze helmet And he placed the bronze armor on his body and he took the sword and the belt and he fastened it and then he couldn't even walk. (laughs) So the ancient armies had three kinds of fighters. They had cavalry, infantry, and projectile warriors. Cavalry, infantry, and projectile warriors. So the cavalry are the ones that ride on horseback. Goliath was of the second sort. He was an infantryman. These were the ground fighters who had swords and spears and shields and armor. And infantrymen were quite effective against cavalry and other infantrymen. Like if you guys have seen Braveheart or Lord of the Rings, then you've seen those lines of battle where they line up with their spears pointing out at the horses and it's totally gruesome. But an infantryman can be quite effective that way. Or if they're going one-on-one doing hand battle but they're not effective against projectile warriors. And David was a projectile warrior. They were the ones who were archers and slingers, men who used bows and arrows and a slingshot. 
And in the book of Judges, we're told that slingers could aim within a hair's breadth of their target. Right? Good, accurate slingers were just crucial to ancient battle strategy. According to Malcolm Gladwell, he says an experienced slinger could kill or seriously injure a target at a distance of up to 200 yards. Like, can you imagine? That's two football fields away slinging a stone and you could do it with accuracy and kill someone. We're told that like old Irish slingers could actually sling and hit birds who were flying out of the air. That's incredible. And David seems to be a slinger of this skill level. And so David took off the armor and he said, look, I'm not used to it. I can't wear this. And he took his shepherding staff in one hand and he took his leather slingshot in the other and he went and he picked up five smooth stones from the nearby creek and he put them in his pouch. And then he ran downhill at Goliath. And Goliath saw him in the distance and he saw that he was a boy, a lad, and he despised him and he mocked him. He said, am I a dog that you should come to me with sticks? I curse you. Come to me so I can feed your flesh to the birds and to the beasts. And so David yells back as he's running. He says, you come to me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, whom you have insulted. And today I am going to strike you down and I'm going to take your head and I'm going to give your corpse to the birds. And then the earth will know that it's not by sword or spear that the Lord delivers. Now, reading this as an adult, I got a little like, ooh, this is weird. So I thought I should make note that I don't know how I feel about this whole idea about killing in the name of God. You know, how about totally uncomfortable? (laughs) You know, especially to think about someone who's probably a teenager talking about cutting off the head of another man, which we'll see he does in a moment, right? You get these sort of flashes of ISIS or something. But with all the scripture, I think we can take this story for what it was in its context, When we look at the arc of scripture, we see that God is slowly discipling humans to act more like the people that he created us to be. And the humans don't have it together at any point. And like us, they don't fully understand God and his ways. And they do some pretty terrible things. But rather than requiring us to be perfect and put together to work through us, God takes us humans where we're at in our context. And we do see God most fully in Jesus, who we meet later in scripture. And Jesus told us to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. But Jesus was nowhere close to arriving on the scene during David's life. And so we just hold this tension in the story as we try and mine it for the gold that it has. Right? There's a reason this story has been passed down to us for thousands of years in our canon. So here we see Goliath meeting David. Goliath, the large infantry man, and David, this young lad, And Goliath is expecting David to fight like another infantryman, right? Goliath expected that David was going to stand in front of him and draw a sword and fight. And in fact, David probably brought his shepherding stick as a decoy to make Goliath think that what he intended to do was to fight him stick against sword, which is why Goliath yells, am I a dog that you come to me with a stick? Goliath doesn't understand what's about to happen to him. And so David is running down the hill and he reaches into his pouch and he pulls out a smooth stone and he puts it in his sling and starts twirling it around. And he's whipping it probably six, seven times a second in a circle. And then he lets it rip. And that stone would have hit Goliath with the stopping power of a bullet from an average gun. And it sank into his forehead and the giant fell face first to the ground. And then David went over 
He took Goliath's sword and he cut off his head, just as he said he would. And the Philistines fled into the hills and ran away from Saul's army. It's funny, I was telling Dan people actually two days ago that I was going to preach on this. He goes, you are going to tell him that he cut off his head, right? <laughs> Preacher's kid. You can't leave that out of the story. <laughs> so, yeah. so we're talking about integrity and influence here. And so there are a few things that I notice in this story that might be helpful to us. So first we look at Saul. Saul's this king. And we're told elsewhere in the Bible that he is as handsome a young man as all of Israel and he was a head taller than anyone else. Right? So we have this man who's a leader and a fighter, and he stands head and shoulders above everyone else in the nation who might have had the best chance over any other infantryman on his side to go and defeat Goliath in hand-to-hand combat. And yet, he cowers and he leads out of fear. We're very clearly told that Saul heard Goliath and all Israel with him, and they were dismayed and very frightened. Fear is contagious. You know, I came across a study a few years ago. It was out of Rice University. And it was talking about how humans can literally smell fear. And that when we get scared, we emit certain chemicals in our sweat. And the psychologists who are doing this study say that this, they think, contributes to what they call emotional contagion in dense crowds. Right? It's probably part of our herding instinct. That when a few people get scared and other people around them smell it, it heightens the fear of the entire crowd. And this is even more potent if you're a leader, if you're sort of like an alpha in the group, people can sense your fear. And this is what Saul is leading from. And then this David guy walks up filled with faith that God will defend his people. Now we note that the story doesn't say that David like heard God say, go kill Goliath, I've got your back. But when David hears Goliath's challenge, when he hears the potential rewards, it's like he just knows that he's going to fight, right? It's just like faith-filled gut knowing. But I don't think it was just the faith that gave David confidence. He's also competent. And he was competent in unexpected ways that gave him an advantage. So everyone around David looked at Goliath and what they saw was strength and power. But David understood that strength and power come in other forms. Right, as a projectile warrior, he knew that he could be quick and that he could maneuver in ways that Goliath wouldn't be able to. And he was clever. He knew that he could trick Goliath into thinking that he was going to fight with his staff just long enough to get a stone going before that shield bearer could get up and defend Goliath. And David had no fear, right? He did have confidence that God was going to come through for him. He was clever, he was quick, and he was fearless. But he also didn't allow himself to be made into someone that he wasn't. Right? Saul wanted to make David over into an infantryman. But David said, that's not who I am. I am not used to that armor and I won't wear it. He had faith that God would come through for him and he had faith that God would do it in a way that was true to who he was. I think if there's a lesson in this story for the ages, it's that God will use how we are and we don't need to be anyone else. So let me give an example of maybe how this could be applicable. So in our culture, I think we often think of leadership skills as looking a certain way. Oftentimes dominant, high energy, magnetic, extroverted people are tapped as leaders. And sometimes they can be very good leaders. But studies have also shown that people who have high emotional intelligence are good leaders. And in fact, can be better leaders than people who just exude charisma. These are people who often have like really good interpersonal skills and who can read emotions and motivations. They can read a room. I know there was some talk in the business world back when I 
worked in it, about the importance of hiring people with really good high emotional intelligence. But it's still not that highly valued, in part because it's not that easily measured in the workplace. But if you have a high emotional intelligence, I think it can be easy to play down those skills or to dismiss them or to allow other people to dismiss them. But when you're you, when you're actually using your strengths and not trying to mimic other people's strengths, you're actually a much more competent leader. Or you might have other skills that are undervalued in your careers or in your relationships, but skills that you've learned that you can trust. And if God asks you to do something, lean on who you are and the gifts that you have and don't try to be someone else. Even if you feel pressure or the temptation is high as it was for David, what do you mean you're going to go against this giant without any armor? But if you try to be like someone else or mimic their skills, it will just feel like David trying to do that trying to walk in something he couldn't walk in. And part of integrity is displaying consistency between our internal selves and our external selves. I'll say that again. Part of integrity is displaying consistency between our internal selves and our external selves. And that's when we're most effective, even if we don't always get recognized for it. It was also interesting to me that in the text, we're told that David left his flock with a keeper right before he went to the battle lines. And then when he gets to the battle lines, we're told that he left all of his gear and the provisions with the keeper of the gear. And then when he puts on the armor, we're told then that he leaves that armor. This narrative evokes a series of divestments by David, right? He's starting to shed things that he's been responsible for. Sheep, provisions for his brother, armor. And I think this is done in part for the storytelling Right? It's compelling to have a young man who goes out against a giant with only a staff and a sling. But it might also be saying something more. I think perhaps that when God gives us faith to do something difficult, we're to lay down our excuses. Right? All of those things that we feel legitimately responsible for that could keep us from doing the thing. To shed those and to put our faith in God. I also note that David wanted to know what he was going to get if he killed Goliath. Right? He listens to the rewards at least three times. It's like he can't get enough of people telling him about the money and the high-profile marriage. Tell me about the fortune and the sex. Let me see if I can do it. <laughs> this could be a character flaw in David. could be a hint that his faith wasn't as strong as his greed, or maybe they were equally at play. Maybe it's a story about how God uses imperfect people. But if we look elsewhere in scripture, it seems like God's fine with us asking him to paint us a picture of the potential rewards of obeying him. Right? Jesus used the idea of future rewards as motivation a lot in his teachings, as did Paul. And so perhaps if God's asking you to do something, to take a risk in your life, then it's okay to ask him to give you vision for what he's doing. You know, I know that when God has asked me to do hard things for him, he's usually given me hope and insight into what he's trying to bring about, whether it's in me or whether it's in a larger sense. And I think that's actually helpful and motivating for us humans. It keeps us going. And last, God doesn't ask us to do difficult things if we're not prepared to do them. You know, in some ways, I think it's easy to look at the David and Goliath story and say, okay, this is a story about a helpless young boy who went out and defeated this big giant but I actually don't think this is a story about a helpless boy who slays a giant. It's a story about a boy who's probably a better warrior than Goliath, and he's been training for it for most of his life, just not on the battlefield. And so perhaps it's not actually a story about an underdog at all, but a story about how things that cause us fear don't have to overpower us. 
Perhaps underdogs are never underdogs at all, but they're people or teams who possess skills that just aren't as valued by our culture. And perhaps their integrity, right? Their knowledge of their own strengths and of who they are and the refusal to imitate other people's strengths is actually an advantage. You know, David and Goliath is a story about a fearless man who knows who he is and he's emerging among fearful people to lead. And he's fearless because of his faith in God He's fearless because of his integrity and knowing who he is and what he's capable of and of not being made into something else. And we close with saying, we are children of the Most High God. And my prayer is that we will know who we are and what we're capable of when we're faithful to who God created us to be. All right, let's take a couple of minutes of silence here. So if you would like to and are willing... We like to have some corporate silence together. It doesn't have to be perfectly quiet because people and babies make noise. But if you'd like to, we can take this space to just talk to God or listen to him about something going on here. And I thought of a couple of things that I thought you might want to spend a couple of minutes doing. One is um, perhaps there's a place in your life where you feel like you've been influencing others out of a place of fear and not out of a place of, of faith or trust or love or integrity. And so if you feel like that's ringing a bell, maybe spend this time just asking God why that is so and asking him to remove that fear. And the other thing that I was, I was thinking was that some of you um, might feel like you're having to be something that you're not, maybe in your vocation or your career, and it's just really um, wearing on you. And I just thought you could spend this time maybe offering before God, like, but this is who you made me. Can you make a way for my skills? Um, for me to be able to have integrity and lead in the way that I am. So I'll keep my eye on the time, and we'll just say, come, Holy Spirit, come and be talking to us now. Thank you, Lord.